Well, this morning we are beginning a new study, and it's going to be uh, in this topic of spiritual warfare. So I'm going to invite you to take your hard copy of the Bible and turn to Ephesians 6, or your digital copy of God's Word and take a few swipes and move your way to Ephesians chapter 6, where we will begin in verse 10, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. And if you were with us last week, I told you what I want to do during this summer is just to to go through this passage of Scripture, verses 10 through 20, in in a very methodical way to hear what the Bible has to say to us about this topic of spiritual warfare. And, and I think a way that this will stick with us beyond just this summer but into the years ahead would be to actually memorize these verses. So I want to put that out to you, challenge you to say, would you memorize with me uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20? And that's what we're going to be doing this summer is, is not only hearing the word but hiding it in our hearts. So hopefully you have it in front of you. Now let's take a look at Ephesians 6. And I'm just going to read all of these, although we're only going to cover verse 10 today. Beginning in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flamey darts of the evil one. And take on the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert with all perseverance making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth, boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Father, as we open the word now, I sense that there is a, a great need for me and for us to be reminded that we are at war. And so may there be a great urgency that rises and flows through us. May our eyes be open that our struggles around us, there's a reason behind them. I pray that as you offer this insight, we would be changed. And when we leave here and our week would look a little bit different, we would be more cued in to the the, the activities and the pulling and prodding that is going on around us. And now, when we have a greater understanding of the enemy and his schemes, may we live in the victory that has been accomplished through Jesus' death and his resurrection. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
I confess to you that I've never served in a branch of the military. Uh, When I graduated college, I considered enlisting in the Army, but I never did. Uh, I've never served in the Navy, the Air Force, or the Marines. Therefore, I've never been in a war. But I do find it interesting that as we look at the New Testament in particular, that the writers often use this metaphor of a Christian as a soldier and of the Christian life as a war. And I was thinking of that as I was reading through the commentary in Ephesians by John MacArthur, and he included this little paragraph that speaks about the Christian life being a struggle. He said this, The Christian who continually seeks to grow in his knowledge of and obedience to the Word and to serve the Lord more faithfully will not find ministry becoming easier. As the Lord gives mastery over certain temptations and weaknesses, Satan will attack everywhere. Faithful witnessing, preaching and teaching, visiting and other service for the Lord not only will bring victories, but will also bring their own special difficulties and opposition. A Christian who no longer has to struggle against the world, the flesh and the devil, is a Christian who has either fallen into sin or into complacency. A Christian has no conflict, is a Christian who has retreated from the front lines of service. Recently, my wife has this idea of getting her own little cruiser pedal bike. A bike uh, We like to take bike rides along the the, the Fox River, or maybe when we go camping. And so she located this bike, and, and it wasn't good enough the way it was. And so she took it apart, and she sanded it down, and she painted it the way that she wanted, and it looks great. She's a master at that stuff. And then she began to put the pieces together, the cables together, and the brakes together, and the rim and the wheels back on its frame. She began to pull off a little bit and drive a little bit. We found out the rims were rubbing with the brake shoes. And so, yeah, you can ride this bike, but it's a real grind. It's a real struggle. You can pedal, but the rims are rubbing against the brake shoes. And sometimes the Christian life can be like that. As best you know, you're doing everything you can and everything that God has asked you to do, but it is very difficult. It's like a grind. Maybe you're here this morning and you find yourself especially susceptible to temptation, easily discouraged, prone to pride, contending with others, and your gospel witness is all but silent. Chuck Lawless, who who writes on this topic of spiritual warfare, said this, the summary I commonly use is that the enemy wants to mess up, that is to have us fall into sin, give up, get discouraged, get puffed up, live in arrogance, split up, divide, or to shut up, that is to quit evangelizing. And if we see these things in our life right now, it could be that we are experiencing some spiritual warfare. Now, as we think about spiritual warfare, there's really two different extremes that we can fall to, fall into, and we got to be weary of both of them. C.S. Lewis, in this wonderful book called Screwtape Letters. Are you familiar with that? He is a a Christian thinker. 
who years ago wrote this little book, and it has several short little chapters. And, and in it, there is this senior demon whose name is Screwtapes, and he is writing to his junior demon, uh, his nephew called Wormwood. And what he is doing is he is giving him some strategies to tempt this, this young man who is uh, discovering the faith and maybe even becoming a new Christian. And so he's offering these strategies of how to get him off the path. And I think it's there in the introduction where C.S. Lewis says, There are two equal and opposite heirs into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They, that is demons themselves, are equally pleased by both heirs and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. So as we enter into this study, this summer study, we don't want to go on either side where we don't acknowledge that there is a devil and there are demons, but we don't want to go overboard as well. So let's just stay with what the scriptures tell us through this passage. So we're going to aim now at chapter 6, verse 10. And my whole agenda today, because I think this is what we got here in the introduction, is to tell you that there is a war going around us. The first word we see here in chapter 6, verse 10, is the word finally. Now this is written by a pastor, Pastor Paul. And you and I know, if you've been in church for any amount of time, that when a pastor uses the word finally, he means absolutely nothing, right? He is only getting warmed up. Because we see here the word finally, and then there's a whole bunch of verses that follow. But let's just do a little bit of a background, because there's a danger in us in just going to chapter 6, verse 10, without any thought to how this church got established, or what the previous five and a half chapters have said. So what we want to do is take some time to give a little bit of a context this morning. The word finally. Let's let's consider where we got this church. The first statement I want to make under this is that the Ephesians knew about spiritual warfare. Keep your finger right here in Ephesians 6, and turn with me to the left in your Bibles, to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19, and this is where we see the historical account of how the church in Ephesus came into being. Now, instead of reading this entire chapter, let me just skip down to Acts chapter 19, verse 8, and allow me to read some of these verses. Verse 8 says, And he, that's Paul, and Paul entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with them, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannius. Now, the hall of Tyrannius would be like a a classroom where people would come in and out and offer lectures. This is where Paul would share the message of Jesus. Verse 10, this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. It's about a year, year and a half ago where we, we worked through the whole book of Acts and we found this familiar pattern. Paul or one of the Christians would go into a city, would preach the gospel, some would receive it, others would say, let me, let me think on that, others would outright reject it. But when there was this receiving of the word, Shortly after that, there was this great conflict that would happen. Persecution would arise. Let's continue reading in chapter 19, verse 11. 
And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that he touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man who was with the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of their house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. All I want to say to you is at the beginning stages of this early church, the people there in Ephesus knew all about demons. They knew about spirits. And so when Paul says to them in Ephesians chapter 6 that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, he did not have to convince them of that. They knew it very well. About six weeks ago, when a team of our church went to Senegal, Africa, and we went to Neomoon Island, I assure you we did not have to convince them of the devil and demons and spirits. They knew all about that. In fact, As we would walk through various neighborhoods, you would see altars that were erected to offer sacrifices to these spirits. But one of Satan's most clever strategies is to convince modern man that he does not exist. Or if he does exist, he is dressed in a ridiculous costume with a long tail and a black pitchfork and petite little horns. The Ephesians knew about spiritual warfare. We're still on this word finally in chapter 6, verse 10 of Ephesians. And and the other thing I would point out here is Christians are at war with three opponents. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1, 2, and 3. Christians are at war with three different opponents, and you know this, church. Chapter 2, verse 1. It says, and you, speaking to the church, you were dead in the trespasses and sins. The first enemy that a Christian has is their own sin. The second enemy we see here in chapter 2, verse 2, in which you once walked following the course of this world. The second enemy is the world. And the third enemy we see in the next passage, it says, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of the disobedience. The third opponent is the devil himself. Let's just take a moment and let's look at each of these in order. Christians are at war with three opponents. The first is that of sin. Or maybe we would say the old man or the flesh. When Adam and Eve first sinned, they had a couple of boys, Cain and Abel. 
And and one day in Genesis chapter 4, God spoke to Cain and he said, Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you. But you must subdue it and be its master. Now, once a person becomes a Christian, yes, they are forgiven of their sins. Yes, they receive a new heart. Yes, the power of sin is is destroyed. However, they will spend the rest of their life killing the deeds of the flesh, killing sin in their life. In fact, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22 tells us, Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. So yes, I have a desire to obey God, but I don't always do that. And that thought is probably best expressed in Romans chapter 7, verses 15 through 25. Instead of reading all of that, let me just read to you verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now our youth and our students, or our little children, are studying the, the fruits of the Spirit this summer on Wednesdays. Do you know that there's also fruits of the flesh? What happens if we just allow our our old man to exert himself, or the old woman exert herself in our life. What does that look like? Well, in Galatians 5, verses 19 through 21, it says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and these things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Here's the point I want to make to you. All sin is an inside job. There is no one here in this room or out of this room that can say the devil made me do it. One of the enemies that we have is sin. And all of us are responsible for our actions. All of us will reap what we sow. So that's our first enemy. The second one is the world. First John 2, 15 and 16. John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. To be a friend of the world is to be an enemy of God. And while we have these desires within us, flesh, old man desires, Christians who have the Holy Spirit in them are trying to live out the grace of God in their life, are saying, I don't want to do this, but the world is encouraging us to do that. Made this little statement here that says, if sin were a flame, the world is gasoline. The Bible, the Holy Spirit is telling us, don't don't act out in that sin. But the world encourages it. So a man can be completely committed to saying, this is God's will for my life. Sanctification, not to participate in sexual immorality. I am to be pure. And he can be living this out. and, And with God's power, doing the very best he can. And then he gets a message sent to his phone or a message sent to his email with the subject heading, come look at me, come and look at my pictures. The world invites us to gratify these lust-filled desires. 
A woman is determined to use her tongue for good, for worship, and to build others up. And on one afternoon, she gets with some of her friends from high school, and, and they have a play date at the playground, and before you know it, she falls into slander and to gossip. The Bible warns of the danger of drunkenness. But you see Snoop Dogg on a, on a commercial there during a, a ball game, and here he is uh, sashaying down the beach as if to say, hey, life is all about leisure, partying, and, and just enjoying yourself. And it is so enticing. What God calls an abomination, the world sets aside a, a month to celebrate and calls gay pride. And when there is a a person that the Lord is touching their heart about self-control. And they say, you know, what I need to do is just watch what I'm putting in my belly and I can't be overeating. And maybe they want to collect some people and say, would you pray for me? Where should we gather for this time where I can just ask for your help? And they might say, well, how about we gather at the Golden Corral? (laughs) Or as my friend used to call it, the Golden Trough. But do you see it? I mean, there, on one hand, there's this desire. I want to obey God. But there's this, there's this whole other current moving around us that's actually pulling us away from that. And Hollywood encourages it. The news encourages Academia encourages it. Social media and even our government. So let me just for a moment then talk about the devil. Here's a third opponent that we have. And, and if the Lord wills, I'll just spend a whole week on this next week. Because we'll look at verses 11 and 12 of chapter 6. But on the whole armor of, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. This third opponent that a Christian fights is this devil and his schemes. So next Sunday, Lord willing, I'll just take a, a, sec, a, a, a sermon and just devote it entirely to that. I mean, nothing says church picnic like brats, you know, cotton candy, snow cones, inflatables, and a sermon about the devil and demons, right? I mean, that's, that's what we got for us next week. But let me just conclude with this statement. Bible history discloses that man is continually defeated by sin, the world, and the devil. If you're keeping a win-loss record between you and sin, the devil, and the world, and, and if we did that for everyone, there isn't any of us that claims victory. I mean, just start with the first man and woman, Adam and Eve. If you think about that, they didn't have to fight sin, and they didn't have to fight a godless world. They only had one opponent, and it was the devil. And they fell. And as a result of that, sin entered the world and a corrupt world was, was something that every man and woman would know from that point. Think with me, this great man of trust, Noah. Oh, he is known for building this ark and, and he certainly was a great man of trust. But how does this story end? It wasn't too long and he falls into drunkenness and immorality. Think of this great man of faith, Abraham. Now, he certainly was a great man of faith, but... If you read his story, you see that in fear, he would fall to telling lies. Think about this, this great man of Moses, this great man who led the Israelites. And he certainly was a great leader, but he would be given over to this rage of anger 
that forbid him from going into the promised land. You can think of Samson, this great man of strength, and he was that. But he, he gave himself over to desire. Or this great King David, who was a, a great man who had a heart after God. But it wasn't long, and he gave himself over to adultery. And his son, this great man of wisdom, Solomon, and he too was defeated by idolatry. You could speed up to the New Testament, and you could see this great man of boldness, Peter. And in a moment of weakness, he became a coward by denying Jesus three times. And even the author of Ephesians, this great pastor, Paul, he gets into conflict with his mentor, Barnabas. Bible history discloses that man is continually defeated by sin, the world, and the devil. So let's continue now. Chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord. We lack the resources to win this war against sin, the world, and the devil. But there is one who has defeated all three of them, and he is Jesus. Be strong in Jesus. Jesus is the Lord who has conquered sin, the world, and the devil. And where we have been defeated by all three of these, he has never lost to these three. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his I was going to call it a little commentary. It's not little, but he, he takes a look at this passage, and he, he lifts up for our uh, encouragement and for our worship who Jesus is and how he faced all three of these things. First thing we could look at is Jesus' life. Jesus obeyed God completely. When it came to sin and temptation, he never yielded. We could read in John 8, verse 29, and what Jesus says, And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And in John 18, when Pontius Pilate had an opportunity to examine and cross-examine Jesus, he came to this conclusion, I find no guilt in him. There are numerous verses, verses that I've included in your outline for you to look up to reinforce that he never sinned. But let me give you 2 Corinthians 5.29. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You could look at his life, but you could also look at his miracles. With mere words, Jesus cast out demons. I mean, when you consider his ministry, he, he would come into contact with demon-possessed people, and just with a few words, they were gone. And thinking of Father's Day, I remember a time there when they were out at the Mount of Transfiguration, and he came down with a couple of the disciples, and there was a dad who had a son that was demon-possessed, and, and Jesus just cast that demon out. And, and Jesus had this wonderful balance. Not everyone who was sick had a demon. Sometimes they just needed to be healed. But there were times where people just needed to have the demon cast out, and he knew what was best and, and what was needed to be done. The third thing we see in Jesus is not only his life, his miracles, but also the temptation. The Bible tells us in Luke 4 that he was filled with the Spirit and led into the wilderness to be tempted. Now, we have something called hangry, right? It's a combination of being hungry and angry. 
But Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. And yet he never gave in to that temptation. And he sent the devil packing. In Hebrews 4, 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And then finally, as we look to Jesus as our example of his life and his miracles and temptation, we look at his gospel, his gospel. Jesus' death and resurrection offer victory to his followers. Now, we are powerless in our fight against sin, the world, and the devil, but Jesus has already conquered those. Colossians 2.15 says, Jesus disarmed the powers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. In 1 John 3, 8, it says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus' life, death, resurrection, miracles, they've all defeated sin and the devil. And yet, it still needs to be played out. So let me then just... End with this last phrase as we look here at verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord. Jesus is the one who has conquered all of those and in the strength of his might. Listen to how J.B. Phillips in its paraphrase of Ephesians 6.10 says it. It says, in conclusion, be strong, not in yourselves, but in the Lord, in the power of his boundless resources. If we are going to go to war, we need resources that are beyond what we have. Several years ago, I had an opportunity to do a ride-along with one of the men in our church. He was a, was a policeman. And I remember going into the room, and we were wrong with all these other policemen. And I'd never been in any, any situation like that, so I was a little taken back by this. And, and the guy that was leading the meeting did this. And all of a sudden, all these guys got up, and they started going down the hallway into their police cars. And, and I'm like, well, I'm not sure what this night will hold for me. And, and we got in the police car with, with Drew and myself, and he's checking all of his guns and all of his ammunition, and there's like this big gun behind us in the window. And, you know, I think the story's probably embellished over the years, but as far as I was concerned, it was a big bazooka or something like that. It's just, and he's like, hey, you might need this. And I'm like, I, I'm just a spectator. I didn't know I was going to be a participant in tonight's activities, you know. And, and as we went around and we made these various calls, I was just kind of learning about what he does. And then somewhere in the middle of that evening, I was like, you know, I'm, I feel comfortable here. I'm, I'm with a guy that we have a nice car that's safe. He he's, knows what he's doing. There's other people that are showing up whenever we make a call. And he's certainly got enough weaponry here to protect all of us here. And and there's something that I think there's a parallel for us as well. At conversion, Christians are enlisted and equipped for war. When you become a Christian, you become a part of this spiritual war. In fact, if you will look at a few of the prayers, I think I'm just going to leave that for you on your own. Ephesians 1, verses 15 through 23 is a prayer. Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 21. What Paul prays for in the church 
is that they would realize the resources they have in the gospel. The resources that they have in their relationship with Jesus. So as you're going to go to war against sin and the world and the devil, what Paul is praying for is you realize that you have been equipped for victory in all of this. Like one who has been enlisted in the army, they are told you are no longer your own property. A Christian has now been purchased. He he belongs to Jesus. And when one goes into the military, they might find out here is who the enemy is and here are his tactics. So will you over these coming weeks. And then you are furnished with clothing, of of boots, of of weaponry, so that you can carry out the task. And this is not our war. The battle belongs to the Lord. Tony Evans said this in his book, Victory in the Spiritual Warfare. You are not fighting for victory. You are fighting from a position of victory. So as we think about warfare, loved ones, We are on the winning side against sin, against the world, and against the devil. And that makes a big difference, doesn't it? Uh, Last night, uh, the Bucks were playing in Game 7. Now, I go by a couple of different models in my life, and one of them is this, never trust the Bucks. They will break your heart every time. And so when I was given an option between uh, honoring my father-in-law with a Father's Day gathering at our house... Or having my heart stomped out in another Bucks uh, defeat watching Game Seven, it was easy to say, "Let's just give this to family." And so, so we just had a great night, uh, fellowshipping with one another, having some burgers and having some laughs, and just just visiting. and And as people began to filter out, I thought, "Well, it's probably about a good enough time to see how bad this game went." And so I, I looked it up, and the Bucks were winning by four with a minute to go. Clearly, they can't blow that, right? So I, I, I turn it on, and before you know it, they've blown it. it. And now it's going to overtime. And there is no way in the world that they're going to win this game in overtime. But, once again, I was wrong. And they won. And you know what? I couldn't wait to watch the highlights. And so I went back and I watched the highlights. As I watched the first and second and third quarter, I'm like, wow, this is not going well. They're, they're really far behind. And it seems like every time there's a break, the, the Brooklyn Nets are getting it. And I'm like, oh, but I remember who wins this. And right now they're in the middle of a struggle. But, but I've seen the final score. And I'm just going to ride this out because I know who wins. And that's where we find ourselves today. We're in the middle of a struggle. We're in the middle of a war. But we know, based on Jesus' death and resurrection, who wins. So we need, to, we need to ride it out. We need to take up our, our battle, take up the armor that has been provided for us and work together to carry this out together. You might be saying to yourself, Chad, okay, I got it. We, we've got three opponents. We, we're at war. Okay, I got that. But I'm not sure I really understand what it means to be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. How do I actually apply that? Well, that's what the summer is about. Next week, Lord willing, we'll find out who our enemy is and what his schemes are. But then we'll be finding out what is this equipment that he has given to us and how can we put into practice on a daily basis this victory that has been granted 
to us. This morning, it was all about just, just telling you, you are at war. This last week, I was listening to Alistair Begg, and as he was winding up a message on spiritual warfare, he said something like, when I was a child, I can remember that our, our country, our land was in war. And so you might say to yourself, man, I wish I could have an egg for breakfast. I wish I could have sugar for my tea. But, but you couldn't. And, and there was a common phrase that was said back then. It was like, don't you know there's a war going on? And so then he said this. When believers start to fight one another, don't you know that there's a war going on? And whenever we think that the whole objective to our Christian life is to sit around enjoying pastries while rubbing one another's back, don't you know that there's a war going on? And whenever we are prepared to settle into a faith of cliches and dry routine, don't you know that there is a war going on? I've just added a few here. And don't you know that whenever a husband and wife argue over something so petty, don't you know there is a war going on? And whenever we are attempting to lead our family in a Bible study and no one can find their Bible and you feel your temperature spike, don't you know there is a war going on? We're in a war, loved ones. Let us be equipped. Why don't you journey? Why don't we walk together? Let's commit this passage to memory and let's, let's experience the victory that has been granted to us. Let's pray. Father, before us, is a war that has already had its outcome determined. We need to be reminded of that. That your son Jesus, his death and resurrection are sufficient to defeat sin, to expose the the lies of this world, and to defeat and and conquer uh, exposing all the lies of the devil. Help us to be reminded of this war that we are in. Open our eyes this week, our spiritual eyes, to say, don't I know there's a war going on? In the times when there's these petty disagreements when there's this quick discouragement when we're so prone to fall into temptation help us to know there is a war going on and oh Lord the victory is before us help us to live from that victory I pray this in Jesus name